Throughout China's growing cities, a new wave of house churches is growing. They have endured despite government pressure and cultural marginalization. Hello and welcome to the God Story podcast. I'm Brent Siddle and my very special guest on the show is uh, Hannah Nation, the Managing Director of the Centre for House Church Theology in the States. Hannah is a writer and a student of missions history and world Christianity. She's the editor with J.D. Zeng of this new IVP InterVarsity Press America book called Faithful Disobedience, Writings on Church and State from a Chinese House Church Movement. And I quote from the publicity, in this volume, key writings from the House Church have been compiled, translated, and made accessible to English speakers. And fascinating they are, and they can teach us a great deal. Hannah, hi, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having me. Now, before we come on to talk about the writers and the writings and how they were translated, and I imagine it all took a, a, a good many years, can you just give us some, some background and to what extent is Christianity growing in China at the moment? Yeah, well, uh, Christianity has grown phenomenally in the, in the country um, since the 1950s. Um, most of that growth took place after China reopened in the 1980s. Um, but there was a house church from the 1950s onward, um, despite the pressures of the Cultural Revolution in, in the 1980s when China started opening up again. There just was this massive growth across the country. Um, today, the conservative estimate is that there are you know, around 70 to 80 million Christians. A lot of people will put the number much higher, well over a hundred million. But you know, whether you go with the lower number or the higher number, it's a phenomenal outpouring of the Holy Spirit across China. Yes, when I read the figure, one hundred and ten million, which I think came from the book, uh, I mm -hmm. thought, gosh, that, the gosh, that's a lot of people. Then I thought, well, hang on a minute, what's the Chinese population? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I think it works out at about seven, a little over seven percent, which is still a lot. That's a. That's it a, is still a lot, and and it's actually that's a very significant number missiologically, even somewhere around the five percent, seven percent mark is uh, considered. Uh, not just noteworthy missiologically, but somewhat of a turning point or a tipping point. Yes. So. Why is why is Christianity becoming so? I'm going to say popular is the wrong word, but why is it become why is it growing so fast in China? That is a good question that I'm sure there are lots of different answers to. Um, but yeah, I think. China has really seen, uh, th there's been so much um, cultural turmoil and cultural upheaval. And for, for certain the last century, I think it extends even farther back. Um, and, you know, a lot of my Chinese co-workers will um, just talk about how there has been um, so many, so many of the foundational elements of Chinese society have been removed. So um, there was the abandonment of Confucianism. Um, there was, in, in essence, there's been somewhat of an abandonment of communism or traditional ideological communism. And then, you know, I think today so many people are dealing with the disillusionment of just material promise of materialism and material gain. And so 
um, there's this unique opportunity for the gospel to speak to the really the cultural roots of Chinese society um, mm. because there's there's such a void and such a vacuum there. Now I was fascinated to learn about all the growing urbanization in China, and your book is very much tied up with all this, isn't it? How important has the growing urbanization in China been to the growth of the house church movement? Oh, very significant. So the the house church, as it was started in the 1950s, really was a very rural um, phenomenon. It, and most of the house churches through the last half of the 20th century, all the traditional networks were found in rural places. And but that also very much reflected Chinese society as a whole still. And then, you know, towards the end of the 20th century into now the 21st century, there's just it's hard to even describe uh, the rate of urbanization that has taken place in China. There's been just a massive movement of people, um, hundreds of millions of people from the countryside into the urban centers. So the demographics of the church have really changed and that definitely impacts evangelism and it impacts church planting and it impacts so many uh, things about the church. And today, most of the um, the growth in the house churches has really been in the cities. So just even how they think about Christian service, how they think about being a faithful presence in society is you know, obviously going to be very, very different in a massive Chinese city of 30 million people um, than it would be in a, an agrarian rural setting. Yes, I want to come and talk on about the uh, the house church movement and what sort of theological diversity it has and all those sorts of issues. But we better ask the obvious question, what is the Chinese house church movement and how does it work? Because this is a fascinating part of your book. Yeah, this is a question I think most people have when they start to engage the house church or hear about the house church. So the house church, in some ways, it's maybe a little bit of a misnomer these days to call it the house church. I very intentionally choose to call it the house church because that is the most direct Chinese translation for what Chinese participants in this movement call themselves. And so I think they increasingly so see it almost as a, a tradition, yes. a Christian tradition. Mm. But, you know, not all of these churches are meeting in houses, no. <laughs> so to say. Many of them are renting space, um, either, you know, in hotel rooms or ho like conference rooms in a hotel, or some of them rent other types of commercial property. Some of them have even owned buildings at times. The pastor that this book uh, is largely about, Wang Yi, um, their church owned significant property um, before it was closed down. That being said, China is incredibly diverse and what happens in one place or in one city isn't always true in a different um, province or a different city. It might not even be true across one city. <laughs> um, you, it's so varied and pocketed. So there are many, many congregations that will still meet in apartment buildings. And I know many pastors whose churches uh, meet in a private home or even if it's not a private home, will essentially um, own a, like a, an apartment building. And that's where, or a, 
not not a whole building, but a unit in an apartment building, and that's where the church will meet. Are most of, if not all, these Chinese house churches unregistered? Yeah, so that is the most basic definition of the house church is that they are unregistered with the with the government. So in China, there is technically freedom of religion. Um, this is something that is written into their constitution, and you, there can be lots of different thoughts and even debate on the implementation of that. Um, there is a state church, both a state Catholic church and a state Protestant church. The Protestant church is called the Three Self Patriotic Movement. And this was established all the way back in the 1950s um, when the Chinese Communist Party, the CCP, came to power. And what birthed the house church movement was essentially roughly half of Chinese Protestant Christians in the 1950s refused to submit to the oversight of the state church of the TSPM. And um, as a result of that, they were pretty actively persecuted and repressed because of their non-compliance with uh, the, the newly formed state church. So in one ways, you could just call them the unregistered church. There are a lot of people who will do that, and that's probably a more accurate description these days. Um, however, they continue to call themselves the house church, and so... I, I I try to use similar language to what they, they use for themselves. Yeah, we'll come on and talk about uh, that in a, a little bit. I want to talk about uh, the, the pastor in question, but um, Wang Yi, who's become one of my heroes. But what, what, what has traditionally been the church's relationship with the state in China? Yeah, so the house church's relationship with the state in China has, has definitely been fraught. In the 1950s, there was, as I said, uh, active persecution. Really, all of the first generation of pastors who refused to enter the TSPM were endured a whole range of um, persecution. Um, most of them spent significant time in jail. And that persecution then increased significantly, even through the Cultural Revolution. And even during, during the Cultural Revolution, even the TSPM endured quite a lot of hardship and um, was essentially closed and shut down. And so there was a long period in China in which many people believed that Christianity may have been eradicated from the country or didn't exist any longer. Um, in the 1980s, when everything started opening back up, the TSPM was reestablished, and it also became apparent that there had been um, a house church movement, a rural house church movement that had continued and persevered through all of that. The 80s, and especially the 90s and the early 2000s, really were a period of relative <laughs> peace, you could say. You know, I would, there's all, all of the pastors that I know throughout, you know, their lives have endured some kind of harassment, but there, there really was this period in which relations between the house churches and the government were were much uh, less intense and a lot of really interesting things were happening during that period. In 2018, 
the CCP put in new religious regulations. And essentially what happened was persecution ticked back up. And there's once again more now, a more uh, conflicted relationship between the two. That also still varies. I know many pastors across China who are just fine and not being interfered with, but I also know many who are regularly dealing with harassment. Yeah. Uh, to what extent is the house church leader's opposition to the three self, the official church, on account of its liberal theology as much as it is on account of government control and the, the dislike of government control? Yeah, well, of course, that varies. You know, there's the house churches are also wide and varied. So, you know, if you have 100 million Christians, you will have, you know, lots of divisions and different opinions and um, different stances on all of this. But I would say historically, the theological differences have been very significant. Historically, uh, the founders or, you know, it, it's a movement. It's not a, an organized thing, the house churches. So founders, it's probably better to say forefathers than founders. But um, the forefathers really reacted to the TSPM on very theological uh, for very theological reasons, largely due to the fact that the TSPM was headed by um, more the more liberal theologians. There were some more conservative pastors involved with the TSPM, but the leadership was definitely um, more liberal. And so there has been um, a long-standing theological divide between the TSPM and the house churches. Now, of course, you will find pastors in the TSPM today who also are varied in their theological commitments. But as a whole, this kind of difference does exist between the two. Who is Wang Yi and how influential has he been in the Chinese house church movement? Yeah, so Wang Yi is a fascinating figure in the landscape of house church Christianity. So he was, um, even before he became a Christian, he was a notable thinker and intellectual. He was very involved in human rights advocacy. He's a trained lawyer. And he was very involved in, in China's, basically China's kind of intellectual crowd. <laughs> um very prominent online as a writer. He became a Christian and pretty much immediately uh, started getting involved in uh, a church called Early Rain. Mm -hmm. um, it started as a Bible study and then very quickly grew to um, be a church. Um, it's located in Chengdu, which is in the southwest in Sichuan province. And yeah, Wang Yi's become a very notable figure. He's definitely, you know, he's very gifted as a writer. He's very gifted as a thinker. He's a very gifted speaker. And so he very quickly became a very visible representative, you could say, of house church Christianity with China. Now, that definitely has, has been controversial at times because he is very outspoken. Many house churches, even if they would agree with perhaps his stance or, or his 
theological stance on the state and the relationship with the state. Um, they would not be particularly fond of how outspoken he is um, on these matters. And so, you know, he's he's a bit of a, a lightning bolt, <laughs> you could say, on the landscape of house church, uh, of the Chinese house churches. I found him absolutely fascinating. Um, what were his objections? And we should say he's currently in prison, isn't he? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and has been since 2018. Correct. You will come on yeah. and talk about that part of his story because that's 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 fascinating too. But what were his objections to becoming part of the state church system? What did he really object to? Yeah. So, I his his objections ultimately come down to the question of allegiance and the question of the church's allegiance, the Christian's allegiance, and the matters of the heart and all of this. One of the interesting things about him, and I wanted to try to show this in the book to whatever extent possible is that, you know, he became a Christian out of this uh, human rights background. And so a lot of his earlier thinking on the subject of church state relationship is very much influenced by the language of rights and freedom and the rights of the church and um, individual conscience. But the longer he was a pastor and the more uh, he was theologically engaged, you, in my opinion, you really see him think about these matters more and more as a pastor and really more and more as someone who is wrestling through the question with his congregation and trying to figure out really on the ground as a church, what does this look like? And so for him, ultimately, he would say that his refusal to comply with the TSPM comes down to the question of who is the head of the church and who is the Lord of his heart. And he engages those questions from this very big kind of cosmic eschatological perspective where he's really asking all these questions about where are we headed, you know, as a people, as a church, what is our end destiny? And how does that inform this question of our relationship to the government? Yes, and he comes from a legal background, doesn't he? Um, I'm I'm fascinated that so much of his political thinking seems to have been influenced by people like John Locke Mm -hmm. and Samuel Rutherford. So he's had access to a lot of Western thinking about politics and church and state issues. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely the the human rights group, the kind of uh, Chinese intellectuals that he was a part of would have been they they were all very engaged with um, Western political thought. And um, he definitely at points very early on in his writing, he definitely is very influenced by, you know, basically ideas that the church is kind of the the pure democratic um, arena, or this is kind of the the real public square, and the church provides this for China. Um, But as he evolves, and as he progresses, I think he starts to become more influenced by basically reformed kingdom theology and just this idea that with Jesus as the king, that that has implications for Mm. 
the church's public presence and public witness in society. Yes. How did he get access to it? Because he writes, if I'm correct in remembering, uh, he writes very much from what I think of as a Reformed Presbyterian background, doesn't he? How, mm -hmm. how, how did that come about? How did he make that connection? So, I mean, he's very well-read. Um, many of these works have been translated into Chinese. He is very much involved with uh, various reformed movements across China. Um, there is a growing reformed presence within especially urban house churches across China. And um, so it's it's not just Wang Yi who has been engaging um you know, reform theology, but it's a growing, it's a growing movement across China for sure. Okay. Well, what happened to him in 2018 and other, and, and many others when the, yeah. the new regulations on religious affairs were introduced by the government in 2018? Walk us through yeah. what happened to Wang Yi. Yeah. So 2018 really saw progressive escalation of the relationship between early reign and the government. And Wang Yi was, I think, pretty clear sighted on the fact that uh, he was likely headed to a longer detention. So he, you know, most house church pastors in China have spent some amount of time um, being questioned by police, interacting with police, um, even spending some time in jail. So, like all house church pastors, Wang Yi had already had experiences um, with the authorities. But in 2018, it became clear that the situation was escalating. In mid-2018, there was kind of an, an initial raid on early rain, and Wang Yi was arrested, and he was held for about 48 hours. And after that, he was released and he preached this sermon, which is in the book, which is just a very high emotion sermon discussing um, his belief that um, suffering and the way of the martyrs is the call to the church and not just to his church, but to all churches um, broadly. And I would say really from that point on, it, it became clear that um that something was going to happen. <laughs> in December of 2018, he was arrested. And, you know, everyone who watched early rain from a distance, everyone who was tracking with them, um, no one was surprised that it came. But I think it was very shocking how intense it was. Um, it was clear that it was a a very large and very well orchestrated effort <laughs> by the authorities. And, and it went on for, for days. Um, so Wang Yi was arrested and then all of the leadership of the church was arrested. And then um, over the following weeks, more and more lay people were arrested and um, eventually, you know, in total, probably around 200 people had spent some time in jail. They also confiscated the church's entire property. So as I mentioned, Early Rain was one of the larger house churches. Um, they owned multiple building or multiple floors in an office building. And all of that was confiscated. 
their library was confiscated um, and all of the bank accounts were uh, confiscated as well. And yeah, they're just, it was a very intense attack. It was very vicious. Um, Wang Yi's wife was also arrested and they were both held and their son was placed under house arrest. And one year later, um, Wang Yi was sentenced to nine years in jail. And so he remains in jail today and early reign as a church, they continue, but their ability to meet in person is, is, is very extremely limited. Um, yeah. Yes. And does anyone get to see him? I guess not. Nope. <laughs> does any, no. Does um, anyone know how he is? I guess not. No, I mean, there, we, we have heard that, that he is, potentially doing well. Um, China aid um, has had some reports. Um, but yeah, I mean, we there there is no direct contact with him. Um, there's also no direct contact with his wife. She remains um, under pretty strict house arrest. And so it's for sure something to pray for. Absolutely. Um, and to remember him before the Lord. Yes, we all need to do that. Please, if you're listening to this podcast, prayers for Wang Yi and other Chinese leaders. You wonder how the, uh, you say there is religious freedom in China written into the constitution. How does the government reconcile religious freedom with those events is my question. Um, so what does Wang Yi believe constitutes faithful disobedience? Mm. Coming back to the title of the book. Yeah. So um, prior to his arrest, his final arrest, um, in the fall of 2018, Wang Yi wrote out what was essentially his final statement. Um, and he gave it to the leadership of his church. And he said, uh, if I am detained for longer than 48 hours, um, please release this. So it was released and it was also translated very quickly and um, disseminated really globally. Um, it was pretty widely read when it was released. And that statement, it's called My Declaration of Faithful Disobedience. And it's really just a fascinating, it's just a fascinating essay, um, well worth anyone's time to sit down and read because Essentially, Wang Yi makes the argument that his disobedience is not in any way fighting for his personal rights, but that his disobedience is required of him in order to testify to the reality of another world. And this really is where it comes down to his thoughts on ultimate allegiance um, and ultimate loyalty. He wants to argue that his actions, which I think many would interpret as civil disobedience, um, he wants to nuance that and to essentially call it something else. <laughs> he wants to call it faithful disobedience mm -hmm. um, and to cast it basically in this light of um, of eternity, of, of what matters in the light of eternity and when are we required um, to put our allegiance to the Lord higher than our allegiances elsewhere. 
Yes, you'll find this, uh, if you grab hold of this book, and you should do, uh, you'll find all these articles, sermons, absolutely moving and fascinating, and uh, we all learn a great deal from this. Just briefly, Hannah, what are some of the other important writings you've included here? Because there's masses of stuff. Yeah. So I think one of the most important essays from Wang Yi is, um, it's called um, History is Christ Written Large. And I think that especially paired with my declaration of faithful disobedience, um, those are really his kind of most central, that's the, the best distillation of his thought um, before his arrest. Um, the history Christ or history is Christ written large. That is really communicates just the the large scope of his vision, um, and just when he says that his disobedience is in order to testify to the reality of another world, the kind of question of like what is this other world that you're testifying to. Um, he's really communicating that in um, Christ or history is Christ written large. I'm sorry, I keep getting that wrong. Um, but the other important documents, I mean, there are so many that are important, but one of the other really important uh, groups of documents in the book are at the beginning called Our House Church Manifesto. This was a group of documents that Wang Yi compiled it includes his own writings and it includes writings from other very well-known house church pastors um, in Beijing. And that's important because that is a really good demonstration of how much these these urban, this kind of new wave of urban, um, at least somewhat reformed pastors, how much they want to see themselves connected to the first generation of house church pastors. And I think how much they really want to see the house church as a tradition and as a, a legacy that they should uphold. And so that's a very important set of documents um, just for understanding the house church and the perspectives of the house church. Yes, Hannah Nation, the Managing Director of the Center for House Church Theology in the States, and the book, she's the editor with J.D. Zeng of this new InterVarsity Press IVP America book called Faithful Disobedience, Writings on Church and State from a Chinese House Church Movement. You will find it moving, you will find it fascinating. I did, um, and I want to go back and spend more time with it. Uh, and thanks to our creative team at Liquid Edge who sponsor this podcast and take care of things behind the scenes. Hannah, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for having me. Pleasure. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the God Story Podcast. To ensure you never miss an episode, please subscribe. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please take a moment to give us a rating and leave a review. This will help more people discover God's story for themselves. If you'd like to get in touch or learn more, please visit godstorypodcast.com. We'd love to hear from you. That's godstorypodcast.com.